1901, a woman by the name of Annie Taylor climbed into a barrel so that she could ride that barrel over Niagara Falls, the first person to do so. The reason for her crazy endeavor? She was struggling to make ends meet, and she was hoping for fame and financial security. It's Ryan from United Faith Mortgage, a faith and family mortgage team that tries to improve your financial outlook without having to ship you over a 170-foot waterfall. Our mortgage team happens to be an arm of a bigger company who is a direct lender, which means our company gets to use its own money and make its own decisions within its own walls. There's no middleman. This advantage often allows us to get you a better rate, which can save you monthly and lifelong money through a refinance, or help you with a cash-out refinance, cashing out some of your home's equity to use for life. We are United Faith Mortgage. United Faith Mortgage is a DBA of United Mortgage Corp. 25 Melville Park Road, Melville, New York. Licensed mortgage banker. For all licensing information, go to nmlsconsumeraccess.org. Corporate NMLS number 1330. Equal housing lender. Not licensed in Alaska, Hawaii, Georgia, Massachusetts, North Dakota, South Dakota, and Utah. It's time for Open Line Chat, and Dr. Steven Sanchez is with us. He's standing in for Dr. Rydelnik, and he is a professor of Bible at Moody Bible Institute, and he's got his Ph.D. from Dallas Theological Seminary, and he's also a contributor to the Moody Bible Commentary. He's here to answer your questions. You can text us right now at 423-629-8900, because we're going to start with a couple of doozies for the professor just to make his Christmas even merrier. <laughs> Good morning to you, Dr. Sanchez. Thanks for coming back, being willing, being brave enough to come back. Good morning. It's good to be here with you all. <laughs> okay, so last week we had all types of questions coming in, and we had to hold the last one until this week. And it's from David, and he basically just says, will you please explain Luke nine twenty seven? So I guess we should read it, huh? Yeah, that's a good idea. <laughs> Luke nine twenty seven. The context here is uh, Jesus foretelling his death. What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses uh, loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words of him will the Son of Man be ashamed. And then verse nine twenty seven. But I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. Mm. So what the suggestion is. Well, right, what's going on here? How is it that these people are not going to taste death until they see the kingdom of God? Yeah. But then God hasn't happened and all those guys died. Yeah. Sounds like a bait and switch. Um, but the next section is the transfiguration. Oh. Right? So what happens at the transfiguration? Eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter, John, and James, and they went up on the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered and his clothing became dazzling white. Behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish in Jerusalem. So these guys who were with Jesus eight days before are alive when they see the curtain pulled back just a little bit mm. to see Jesus transformed in the manner in which he will be in the kingdom. I think that's a good way to look at this passage. They're not going to taste death until they see the kingdom. They see a glimpse of the kingdom in the transfiguration. Okay. They see Jesus in a way that nobody had ever seen him before on this earth. They get a little moment, a peek into the kingdom. Of his glorified self. Of his glory that he's going to be showing in the kingdom all the time. That's right. Okay. That's right. Okay. No. So, okay. The kingdom has several multiple layered meanings, right? That's right. The kingdom well, of so God is righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Ghost, but it's also heaven. 
right? Listen, we so much of biblical interpretation, we we forget that it's like the way we interpret things in the English language. It's not it's not really that crazy when we think about it. I love my wife. I love my kids. I love the New York Yankees, and I love ice cream. Yeah, right. It's it's four four different uses of the word love all at once. So sometimes the kingdom is a place. Sometimes the kingdom is righteousness. Sometimes the kingdom is a glimpse of Jesus, who is the King in the kingdom. Huh. It's all those things. And and as interpreters, we're asking ourselves, okay, which nuance of the word is being used at any given point? One question I always have about this text is, how does the writer know that it's Moses and Elijah? Yeah, how did he? Right? I mean, I think the easy answer for that one is Jesus is like, hey, Moses, I haven't seen you in a while. <laughs> Elijah, it's been so long. It's great to see you. And so the writers, they're writing down Moses and Elijah. <laughs> yeah. I was wondering that, too. How do they know? From name tags, right? From the stone cave drawings. <laughs> that's like a <laughs> secret handshake. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, that's a good one. Okay, so we've, we've had another one just come in, and it's um, it's from Thessalonians chapter 2, if you want to start going there and it says who do you think the restrainer is in second thessalonians chapter two um who is to restrain in the man of lawlessness if this is the holy spirit what do you think the implications are of that regarding rapture of the church prior to the tribulation and i am going to post this for you we're actually talking to dr sanchez in zoom I'm going to post this question for you so you can actually read it for yourself. Oh, you're going to but I'll read it again. But okay, it's, um, who do you think the restrainer is in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2? That is restraint in the man of lawlessness. I think I'm not quite sure how to say that. Yeah, but it's, it, no, it, it's, a, it's a good question, right? Okay. Second uh, Thessalonians 2, 6 and 7. And you know that what is restraining him now so that he may be revealed in the future for the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. Okay. And it's often it's often considered that this may be the Holy Spirit who's sort of holding the holding things back from okay. getting as bad as they could be. And then when he's pulled out of the way, then things will really descend into into things that are not so great during in the end times. I mean, it's a real, it's a real, it's a real thing we see in scripture, right? I mean, God holds things back and then lets things go when it's according to his plan. I'm thinking yeah. particularly of Israel asking for a king, right? To have a king was not a bad thing, but they wanted a bad king. They wanted a king that was going to do what they wanted. And so God gave them such a king in King Saul. And it it wasn't a great thing for them. No. It didn't turn well. And so in this case, it's the Holy Spirit that's holding things back, right? Keeping keeping things from getting as bad as they could be. And then the day is going to come when God's going to say, okay, I'm done with that. And then the end times are really going to be not a great place to be, right? It's a good reminder that as bad as we think things are, God is at work patiently restraining evil and holding things back and and preventing people from doing all the dastardly things they want to do. Mm-hmm. It is really God's mercy that we're not consumed by more evil that, that we see around the world all the time. And the day is coming when things are going to get really, really bad. Wow. And that's something we can continue to thank God for. We don't even know all the things he's rescued us from, protected us from, um, 
closed our eyes to so we don't see what you know we could be seeing and you know but, but the the next the last part of this question though I don't want to skip over it is that regarding rapture of the church prior to the tribulation now he's getting into pre-trib post-trib that kind of stuff right that, that that's exactly right and in that case we're asking ourselves questions like is God going to allow his people to go through that final wrath Right? Is God has God decreed that He's going to take people His uh, His His church out of the world before that wrath comes? Hmm. And many dispensationalists, of which Moody Bible Institute would fit into that category, um, many dispensationalists would say, no. In fact, God is going to take His people out before that wrath comes. And we would turn to First First Thessalonians chapter four and uh, say that. The rapture is this. This is indicated there. It might not be as clear as some would like like it to be, but the idea is: Would God allow His people to go through that kind of wrath? And the answer is: Well, maybe, but not necessarily, right? God has allowed His people to suffer in the past. There's certainly no reason why He couldn't allow His people to suffer again in the future, unless He has said that He's not going to do it. And many, myself included, would argue God has said here in this case. That guy, he's going to take his people out before that harsh, harsh judgment comes on earth. Okay. I pray that that's going to happen. <laughs> We're, and, we won't you know until we get there. And and if it doesn't happen, he's going to be with us. Yeah. He's going to help us endure. And in the end, our future is secure in Christ, right? This is the key. In the end, God's going to take us to be with Christ. The bride of Christ will be with him in glory forever. Amen. We got another question for you, Penny. I think you're going to read it, right? I am. That is definitely what I am going to do. It's about <laughs> names. Look, I am I am not very familiar with stuff about the tribulation, uh, but I do know that I can't pronounce stuff. So this friend says, how on earth did Jesus get the J sound in his name in the West? When in Hebrew, we know it was Yeshua. I don't think Jesus minds, but I feel like a lot of people believe his given name was Jesus. Great question. His given name is, yeah, Yeshua is probably better. Uh, but even that, right, let's remember that language changes mm. as culture, as language, as names pass through cultures. We were sort of joking off the air. My grandfather's name is Jesus. And every person that I tell that to immediately says, oh, you mean Jesus? And I say, no, no, if we're speaking English, it's Jesus. <laughs> but if we're speaking Spanish, then it's Jesus. Uh, and so we have to remember that le letters and sounds change across languages. And so it's it's just a case of a letter in Hebrew, Yeshua, the, that Y sound in Western European languages adopting a hard J sound. And so that transition gets made. People in one culture call it one thing. People in another call it another thing. It's the same name. But you're right. His original given name probably didn't sound like Jesus, something more like Yeshua, Yehoshua, depending on who you're talking to. Yehoshua, which is Joshua. Which is Joshua. I mean, we don't have Yehoshua in the text. We have the Greek version of Yehoshua in the in the Greek New Testament, but it's it's Joshua uh, and its variations. So that's a possibility. Well, we just talked about 30 minutes ago to a, um, a guy in Israel, and he used the correct term Yeshua, and I can't even mm -hmm. say it, but I think you know what I'm going to try to say, the Hamash Hamashua. Something. Yeshua HaMashiach, Jesus the Messiah. Yes, HaMashiach. That's right. it? Okay. So that, so that's, that would be the Hebrew version of Christ, right? The okay. anointed one. We say Jesus Christ, Yeshua HaMashiach would be a Hebrew way of saying that. Okay. The anointed one, yep. One of my goals before the end of the year is to be able to say that correctly. Ah, that's a good goal. <laughs> that's a new goal. That's a new goal. <laughs>
Okay, yeah, well, let's yeah. close out with this last question. It's one of mine, and yeah, it's it. it's about uh, the wise men and how they were basically astrologers from the east, and they and so I understand astrology to be an occult practice of looking at the stars, you know, kind of like horoscopes, finding zodiac Not meaningful good. things, and so yeah, they're in the Chris, Christmas story, they're in the Christian story, and uh, they're praised, and so I just like I, I've always wondered how does this go together. This they're practicing astrology, but they get this right, and they're looking for the Savior. So I think we have to remember that God communicates to whomever he wants to communicate. We yeah. are told in the Bible, in Deuteronomy, Israel is specifically told, and I think there's good application for us as well, but Israel is specifically told, avoid all that witchcraft, all that necromancy, all that astrology. Stay away from all that stuff. God is going to give you the revelation you need. I think it's fascinating. God anticipates that as Israel goes into the land, they're going to want information about the future that they don't have. I mean, who doesn't want that, right? Wouldn't you like to know if you're going to get laid off next week or if you're going to get promoted? Mm -hmm. That would be really nice. And so people turn to these supernatural things to get that information. God says, don't do that. I'm going to give that to you. Okay, that's number one. So Christians today, don't go to the horoscope. Don't go to the palm reader. Don't go to astrology. Not good. On the other hand, we do see in Scripture where people who do engage in those behaviors, God gives them a revelation. Think of Balaam and Balak. Mm. In the book of Numbers, right, Balak hires Balaam, who is a prophet, a pagan prophet, to curse Israel. And Balaam says, you know what? I'm going to do what God tells me to do, and he blesses Israel instead. So he's a bad guy looking for information from places he shouldn't, but God appears and gives him information, and he says something good about Israel instead. And so I think we can say the same thing about what's happening in the, in the case of the Magi. These guys did things that weren't great, but God revealed himself to them. God must have shown them this information and then guided them to find that star that was where the Christ child was born. And so in that sense, we have God reaching into a world and revealing himself and directing these men to the place they needed to be. That's how they show up in the Christmas story. Not as permission for us to do that, Uh but as an acknowledgement that God can work in Gentiles and pagans, wherever he wants, God can drive people to Christ. Okay, I love this explanation. It reminds me of people who are doing drugs and they see Jesus. (laughs) They're and become a Christian. I don't know how many of your viewers, your listeners have people like that in their lives. I know people. And you say, how did that guy get saved? How did that happen? God invaded their world. That's uh, right. That's amen. Right. Hey, amen. Dr. Sanchez, thank you so much for being with us these few weeks. And you've been a blessing to us and to our listeners. And uh, we're going to have you come back in the new year. We know um, Dr. Rydelnik will be coming back as well. But we're going to switch you guys out and uh, have you share <laughs> space and do musical chairs and all that good stuff. But we want hey. you to have a, a wonderful Christmas and new year. 